I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meted is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. G'day and welcome to the Aussie Med Ed, the Australian Medical Education Podcast, where we get to interview specialists in a variety of medical areas, asking their opinion on their certain conditions, obtaining their insight into how they diagnose and treat that condition. In these COVID times, it's a way of replacing the relaxed discussion around the hospital by allowing the listener to put forward questions to be answered or addressed on their behalf. I hope you enjoyed the whole program. Welcome once again to Aussie Med Ed. And in this edition, we get to speak to Dr. Mark Cesano. He's a sports doctor and also a designated aviation medical examiner. He's currently head doctor of the Adelaide Football Club in the AFL. He's going to talk to us about lower limb sports injuries, particularly those that don't involve surgery, the non-operative management of osteitis pubis, hamstring injuries and patellar tendonitis. Not only would this information be useful for the general practitioner seeing a patient on a regular basis, but also for the medical student revising for their exams or preparing for their OSCE examination. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Adelaide in South Australia, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'd like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land which this podcast has been produced, and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr Mark Cesana, a sports doctor and a designated aviation medical examiner. He's currently the head doctor at the Adelaide Football Club in the AFL and has a lot of experience in sports and medical injuries. Welcome Mark Cesana. Thanks, Gavin. Nice to be on board. It's great to have you along today. Um, obviously, you've got a lot of experience in non-operative management of uh, sports injuries. I thought we'd look particularly at the lower limb ones. In particular, I thought we'd start off with the ones that don't really involve an orthopaedic surgeon, that of osteitis pubis, a condition which is a common presentation of a sports doctor and can really have quite a huge impact on a player's career. Yeah, interesting, uh, Gav, is that uh, osteitis pubis is a sort of term used a lot within the public and the sporting community by coaches, I understand it. But to me, osteitis pubis is just one part of the athletic groin. The osteitis pubis part of it refers to the bone pain and often with associated with that, you see bone edema on, on an MRI scan. However, again, it's just one small part of the whole picture of the athletic groin pain. And along with bone, we also see in the athletic groin, the pubic symphysis can be involved. We see the attachment of the adductor group, particularly adductor longus, the rectus group and conjoint tendon group, which of course merge into the adductor longus. And we also issues around the iliopsoas, that's part of the athletic groin. And even really, again, we could branch off into hip as part of the sort of athletic groin pain. So again, I see that as a whole spectrum of issues of which osteitis pubis is one part, but we use that terminology because that's what coaches and, and, and members of the public understand. And it presents predominantly with pain just in the groin or are there different areas of pain depending on of which one of those uh, diagnoses? Or? Yeah, look, my experience, particularly dealing with Australian footballers, it's a, it's a very insidious onset. And what they'll describe is initially they'll just feel like particularly their adductor muscles are feeling a little bit tight and their hip flexors are a little bit tight and they feel as though they've got to stretch it all the time. Once they go beyond that stage, then they start developing pain, and the pain can vary depending on where the structure is. But it generally starts 
in the adductor, just lateral to the pubic symphysis, right in that insertion when the inductor attaches onto the bone at the enthesis, and then sometimes in the lower abs. And as it becomes more pronounced, they describe a loss of function, for example, acceleration and change of direction function. And then in particular, they'll often find a loss of kicking power. And then as it progresses, it tends to become more centralised and involve the pubic symphysis and the pubic bone. And during that time, uh, when it reaches that phase, I'll often get pain after the event. And even when severe waking up during the night, rolling over in bed, coughing, giving them pain, first step in the morning, giving them pain, and reaches the point where they're just no longer able to run and do the things that they'd normally need to do in their sport. So there is a wide spectrum of presentation, but that would be the traditional um, sort of pattern we would see. And the predominant cause of the actual osteitis element is just purely the periostitis of the of the pubic bone or what actually occurs? Absolutely. That's the pathological process that's going on there. Uh, now, causation, of course, is really difficult, and it's something that we sort of don't understand that well, but what we do see is a number of elements. We see the most athletes are involved in a twisting and turning sport, like a European handball, those sorts of things. Most of them will be have very poor control muscles and they have trouble stabilising their uh, pelvis when they're undergoing these rapid changes, directions and accelerations. And then either as part of it or after it, you'll find that the muscles, all the muscles that attach around the pelvis are all tender, all sore and often all tight and show signs of pathological changes, either an ultrasound, MRI, and various forms of imaging. When you look at the patients, but the actual patients themselves, are they are these patients that tend to have more loose ligaments, or they tend to be more stiff ligaments and more uh, force going through their joints? Good question. I, I think you get the extremes of both. Um, the stiffy, certainly those that are stiff around the hips and stiff through the back and hamstrings. Now, is that a chicken and egg? Are they presenting like that? But generally, they're the ones that are more likely to present. But we certainly sometimes see these hypermobile or borderline hypermobile athletes and they universally, they've got this massive range, particularly around their hips, back and pelvis, but they can't control it because they're not strong enough. So you get that hypermobile lack of strength sort of athlete as well. So uh, it, it does go across the spectrum. So as far as I understand it, it can go on for months on, months on end. What's the basic treatment of it? Oh, look, it, 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 it is depending on the pathology in the patient. I have seen some of these patients with really, really severe bone pain, the traditional osteoarthritis pubis that we talked about, they can be sore walking around for two years in terms of they're just that pain. I've seen them go that long. So once I've got that endemic bone pain and that really irritated pubic synthesis, and if sometimes that degenerative pubic synthesis, they can go on for a, for a long, long time. Look, the, 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 the mode of treatment is, is classic as you would with any other sports injury or any other injury. The first thing is to modify them back to pain-free levels, control their pain, whether that be by anti-inflammatories, targeted cortisone to the pubic symph or the adductor longus, and regular icing. So really control that pain and then try to introduce the appropriate exercises to deal with their deficiencies. And that usually involves some really highly targeted exercises. I like starting with isometric work around the uh, adductor muscles and the ab muscles, 
then into some more traditional core Pilates type stuff. Once the pain starts to settle and they start to develop some strength, then you obviously slowly reintroduce them back into activity and then go for a more traditional strength program with squats, deadlifts, those sorts of things, bridges, etc. So it really depends on the athlete, what you're seeing, and again, how you intend to build them up and what level they're playing and how quickly you can build them up and, of course, how you can control the pain. One of the big problems is these bone edema issues and if they've got significant bone pain, they're very hard to control that pain and it, it often is just a matter of time. We've tried a number of things for this bone pain, but once that's, that's sort of set in, it's really, really difficult. And obviously, there are some cases, very few, but there are some cases that need to go to surgery and that will depend very much on what the pathology is and how we can assist by a surgical mechanism in that whole rehab process. They're very rare, but that does happen. Now, for the listener who doesn't quite understand what isometric exercises are, can you please explain what they are, the different types of exercises that are available for the physiotherapist? Okay. This, look, if you look at how would you exercise a muscle group, there's three ways you can do it. The first way is traditionally a concentric. So if I've got my biceps and I'm doing a shortened biceps curl and bringing my elbow in, the muscle group is shortening and that's a concentric exercise. If I got that same heavy weight and I lengthen out my arm and lengthen out my bicep, that's an eccentric exercise. The newer area of which people are looking at is, and as I said, I find a really good place to start and it's really good for tendons in my experience, is an isometric exercise where you're just activating the muscle and pushing it against a fixed object. So you might hold your hand up against your bicep, your hand, and activate your biceps, but you're not moving. So that's what I would mean by an isometric contraction. And they're really nice things to start with a patient because they feel comfortable with them. You can tailor them. It might be something as simple as a five-second on, ten-second off to the adductor. They will feel confident about it. They won't get that catastrophic fear from the previous pain and the brain overacting. And also they do get some, there's been some documented analgesic response in some tendon tissue. So that's why I tend to start with that. But it would depend on the muscle group. A traditional groin pain, you might just do some isometrics to the adductor because they're really the most aggravated tissue. But at the same time, you might start, say, with a concentric bridge type or hip thruster manoeuvre. So you really got to target it to the muscle group and how aggravated they are. What about passive stretching to try and stretch the muscles out and take the stress off the tendons themselves? Does that have any place? I, I, I certainly don't like that early on because obviously what's happened, and you examine these guys' adductors, for example, they're really tight, and that's almost a protective mechanism, I think, from the, the body to try to protect those tendon and pieces from extracting on the the insertion and the pubic symphysis. So certainly early, I don't like a lot of stretching. Uh, once people are up and about and moving and back to their sport, then sometimes some passive stretch holds are okay. But again, they're not something that generally feature in my uh, my uh, particular uh, regime till very late on. What about, are there any investigations you might do as part of the whole process for osteitis? And what, what other things would you want to exclude talked about hip pathology you might want to do an MRI I presume to the hip or to assess the label. well look I, I usually start with a plain x-ray and what I do do I, I, I like a flamingo view 
which is where the you'd be familiar with these, where uh, uh, the patient stands on each leg. And what I'm looking for is, is there any instability in the pubic stem? Now, I've had some patients that had significant trauma or a really degenerative chronic uh, uh, pubic symptom. They will be unstable, sometimes rotationally, but sometimes, and of course, they're even more complex, and a plain X-ray of the hip. I tend to, MRI, as you rightly point out, is much more useful in the hip, particularly if we're looking for impingement, fluid, etc. I find sometimes the MRIs around the groin can be a little bit misleading because I'll often do MRIs in elite athletes for other reasons, say looking at the hip, patients with no groin pain, and we'll see a lot of edema around their groin. So it may be also just a training response in some athletes that don't have pain. So I'm not sure about the reliability of that. What's very useful is ultrasound, and ultrasound, particularly the target cortisone. Say you get an athlete very early in the piece, and I've got an unductor enthesis or ductor tendinosis, then you can run the ultrasound over there. You look at the quality of the tissue, particularly if you've got a really good radiologist. You look at how degenerative the tissue is, how much fluid is around there, what the quality of the tissue looks like, and at the same time, you can target cortisone at the same time as ultrasound. So that's, that's a very, very useful tool in terms of investigation. And in general, in patients suffering from osteoarthritis pubis, do they have a pretty good recovery or are they still left carrying some injury which doesn't ever seem to fully resolve? What's the actual overall prognosis for osteoarthritis pubis? Look, I, I think if they get the, the appropriate management, then you, you can rehabilitate these things pretty effectively. I think once they've got a decent uh, pubic symph and pubic bone signs, particularly if they've had it for a while, then um, the uh, the period of time you're looking at it is at least six to twelve weeks. I think in the early stages, if you just get a bit of a ductor enthesitis or a little bit of rectus abdominis pain at the insertion, then often these athletes can keep playing. You've just got to modify their training and their loading in the gym, etc. But as I said, if you're talking about a real pubic pubic bone pain, you're looking at around a six to twelve weeks. And look, I can talk about a case I picked up last year in a sample player. I was asked to consult him. Couldn't roll over in bed at night in, you know, in January, but yet by September was uh, you know, one of the best players on the ground in the sample grand final. So they can really perform at a really high level. And if you get the program right, pretty well all these guys can, should recover unless they've got some really severe degenerative pubic symptom. I, I just don't see that. I think most patients will eventually, and athletes will eventually recover and return to a really high level of sport. Excellent. Well, let's move on to the hamstring-type injury, another very common injury in football. Uh, is that probably the most common injury you'd see, or what, is, what, are, what are the most common injuries you see? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, look, I've just got the injury survey in front of me from 2017 to from the AFL. Now, obviously, with COVID, we haven't had the updated one from 19. But this a consistent theme is hamstrings are the number one injuries in, in the high-speed sport. And so, for example, in 2018, 6.3 injuries per club. And these are new injuries and injuries where you miss games. So that doesn't include the ones in the preseason as well. And really, hamstrings would be, you know, if we go to, say, groin, we're looking at about, probably about 0.6 per club across all categories, maybe one, one and a half. So we see hamstrings do dominate in the high-speed sports really quite significantly. And, I, 
it's interesting, you know, the reasons why, just 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 for interest, if I, I've, I've got a dial of the last game that the Crows have played, and just an example of the sort of things these athletes are going through, you know, I, I pick out a midfielder, and obviously I'm not going to name the athlete, but his distance was uh, 11, 11 kilometres. He had, of that, one eleventh of his time was spent in greater than 23 kilometres per hour. And during that time, he undertook 23 efforts of greater than 23 kilometres an hour. So you can see at the real elite level how much stress is put on some of these insertions. And if we look at a hamstring, for example, we think it occurs in that, that phase after your foot's landed and you're trying to slow the whole torso down and the hamstring's eccentrically trying to pull up the rest of the body. You can imagine running 11 Ks, of which a tenth of that is greater than 23 Ks, and you're doing that repeatedly time and again. It makes sense why the, the hamstring is put under so much load. I'd like to let you know that Aussie Med Ed is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins, as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist. That's amazing, amazing figures and... Uh... Certainly, how would you how would you grade the type of hamstring injuries that do occur? Yeah, look, that's really interesting. I mean, as you'd know, we we have that old grading system. We tend to still use that. They did try to change the grading system. We tend to still use a grade one, where there's obviously some sort of stretching tissue edema of the muscle, but no anatomical damage we can see. Grade two, where there is cellular tissue damage that can be identified on on imaging, and grade three where there's complete rupture of that particular muscle group. I'm not sure I really like that grading system, but obviously we traditionally use it. I think one of the issues is, for me, identifying the tissues that's involved. The first thing you want to identify is which muscle group. The most common injuries are in the biceps fem, which, as you know, is the accelerator, the more important explosive muscle, the running, the sprinting muscle. That's where the most common injuries are. We do get a small percentage in the medial group, your semi-membranosis, semi-tendinosis, but they tend to be a different mechanism. Whereas the biceps femoris is a traditional high-speed running, change of direction mechanism. The the uh, medial group, for example, are taking the ball on the ground at speed where you're lengthening out that muscle when you're bending over. That tends to be the pattern there, or you're sort of bending over and you're knocked off and you get a big eccentric force through the... Uh, and then, of course, you need to identify the tissue involved. And look, I think more and more we're finding this really, really important. Is it just muscle tissue or is there tendon tissue or is there tendon muscle interface tissue? All these things I think are pretty critical. I'm finding more and more that we're changing our rehabilitation to target various tissue. Now, the evidence tells you if you image, it doesn't change the time of return, but you know, I think it's important to know the sort of tissue you're involved with, particularly at the elite level. And I think we're getting more and more understanding of the tendon injuries. So say if we look at the proximal long head of biceps tendon, which does go a long way if you've ever seen the, the, the anatomy of a, a hamstring tendon, 
for the listeners out there. It's a very, very long tendon. And if that's damaged, that seems to take a little bit longer time than the muscle, but it's not as symptomatic when you're running. So you can get caught out and you think you've recovered. And we'll have all seen these patients in our practice where they go, oh, look, I felt really good. But then I went into a really high explosive football activity and it broke down again. You get these athletes that have, have felt as though they've given their hamstring three or four weeks to recover. They've gone through some rehabilitation stages and then they just break down and it happens time and time again. I actually think that's probably the tendon tissue that's doing that. Uh, and, and often when you go to the imaging, they've had tendon injuries to the tendon part of the muscle. So I think they're becoming more and more important. And then obviously those big ones that you've probably been involved in from the surgical where they've pulled off the whole insertion and obviously they, they, they lead you down a whole different path. The general treatment obviously can be based up into or broken up into both preventative and treatment. Uh, what do you do to prevent them or how do you reduce the, how do you reduce the incidence? Obviously it's, you can't prevent them with the most common injury, but how do you reduce the incidence and how do you treat them once they occur? It's really interesting you ask that question because we've, we've had a consistent theme of hamstring, you know, regardless of all these theoretical mechanisms of, of prevention, we consistently appear to have the same number of injuries year in, year out. Now, if you look at the, the most established risk factor for a hamstring injury, it is previous hamstring strain. So I know that seems simplistic, but that certainly appears to be important. Another risk factor of, of recurrence is how long you get pain walking around after the, the initial injury. So in terms of prevention, then, you know, they're two people you can identify as risk targets. And then it becomes very controversial is how do you strengthen the tendon? How do you make some sure someone's biomechanics are appropriate, that they have got good hip, good lumbar control? How do you make sure they, they condition the, the hamstring to be ready to play? So, for example, the player I talked about before who's got to spend 10% of his time going above 23Ks an hour, then you need to make sure that those players coming into a, off a pre-season have done that sort of activity prior to getting to the match. Because otherwise, you can imagine if they haven't reached those levels and they suddenly reach them in a game, that appears to be important as well. So there's a whole lot of factors that go into this thing. But I... I think it's a mixture of previous history, general control, lumbar pelvic hip control, muscular strength, and the appropriate training to prepare the muscle to be conditioned to the event you're wanting to do. That's, that appears to be the most important thing in, in prevention. In terms of treatment, then look, basic similar things to what I talked about in the groin situation, calm the pain down. Basic ice, basic safe movement within range, non-painful range in the first 48, 72 hours, and then getting the tendon and muscle group moving as quickly as you can in a safe range, and then as soon as you can, adding the appropriate strength to that muscle and tendon group. And all those things need to happen as well as making sure you progress the training program along with the muscle strength and the uh, patient symptoms to build them up to the point where they're able to take enormous loads like we saw in those AFL, AFL players again. Now, how long do they go on icing then for? You know, obviously, it's a 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off rule for a period of time. Um, how, how long do you do that for a day and how many days? I usually like to do that for the first, pretty solidly for the first 24 hours and 48 hours. Compression's important. 
Look, I guess even cryotherapy is very controversial. To me, I think just cryotherapy or icing therapy, what it does is decrease pain levels. So that enables you to get the affected hamstring moving a little bit quicker uh, if you have less pain levels and less of that negative pain feedback. And then, of course, the controversial role is what does imaging play? Now, imaging, as I said, there's a number of studies that suggest imaging, whilst accurate for documenting the tissue that's damaged, how accurate is, is it in, to re- in terms of return to play? Again, I will tend to like the sort of tissue that's damaged, and if there's a high-grade tendon injury or tendon involvement, then I will be a little bit slower in terms of returning them to running. To say I just get a grade one biceps femoris muscle injury of very small note, I'm, I'm happy for those patients to return to very light pain-free running in the first 48 to 72 hours. I like to be quite aggressive with it. Whereas if they've got a tendon involved, I may slow that down a little bit because I think the tendon probably heals at a different rate. And then also later in the rehab cycle, if there's a tendon involved, we tend to cap the speed to around 70 80% until I feel confident that muscle's strong enough and the tendon's been rehabilitated enough with a strength program to go beyond 70%. So again, that's where I think the different tissue may, may play a part. Well, I think we move on to our final topic, I think, which we'll do to cover today is patellar tendonitis and, and uh, uh, patellar femoral um, uh, degeneration and chondromalacia. Um, this is another common injury. I mean, it's probably not as common in the uh, elite athlete as it is in the uh, general population, is it? Or is it, com- is it just common everywhere? Yeah, look, tendon, tendon issues are endemic in, in elite sports people. And uh, particularly is, uh, if we're talking patellar tendon, particularly if we're talking jumping. And once you've got a jumping athlete and you've got an explosive athlete like we saw before with those really high speed uh, they're undertaking, we seem to have an enormous amount of tendon injuries, of which patellar tendon is one. And in terms of chondromalacia, it tends to be in two scenarios. The younger athletes have had a little bit of trauma where they've landed on their knees or driven into their knees. The older athlete that's got a bit of degeneration. But if you do just look at patellofemoral pain alone, I mean, the figures are astronomical, and you would see this in your practice, where you know something around 60% of young women and probably not much less young men have anterior knee pain, which is probably PFJ joint pain. So we, you know, it is a massive issue. And, of course, as you know far better than me, later on in life, it's an area where we get osteoarthritis. So... It's really important to try to address that, you know, when you get them and when they present uh, in, you know, the younger, the better. Now, the process in the past, as far as I've been aware, is basically focusing on vastus medialis obliquus to try and re-establish a good tracking of the patella. What else would you supplement that with? Well, let's go to chondromalacia because I think that's a separate group from tendon. Um, that, that's... That, you, you raise a really interesting point, and certainly when I first started looking at uh, patients in general practice with anterior knee pain, pretty much what it became was the, you know, there was, like, let's rehabilitate the quad, let's rehabilitate the hamstring, and let's see how um, we go, and then maybe if we continue pain, there's surgical options you could pursue. And it was pretty limited to that, and not long after that it became, okay, well, let's, maybe there's some taping and things we can do to help it. Now, what's been, for me, really revolutionary is there's a group called the World Patellofemoral Consensus Group or the Patellofemoral Pain Research Group, and they have a conference every two years, and they bring together some of the world's best experts in this field, 
and start trying to decipher and look at the evidence to say which way we should go in terms of treating anterior knee pain. And the most recent uh, retreat was held in Australia in 2017 in the Gold Coast. And that's a really terrific consensus statement because what it does is gives us some guidance as to how we should treat these guys. And just to summarise, yes, we talk about the strength of the hamstring and the quad, but what appears to be very important is the strength around the hip, and particularly the hip abductors, in terms of hip control and hip uh, stability. Um, there's also mention in there about orthoses, particularly in the short term, that they may be useful. Taping is something that may be useful. And so that's really what I guide my programs around, around that consensus statement. I also personally feel as though to get good hip stability, you need good lumbar pelvic stability. So I generally add that into my programs. And I've got a number of young athletes, 14, 15-year-old, that are presented with anterior knee pain. And uh, if you give them a program like this, based around that consensus group principles, and you do modify their activities early on, and you just coach them through it and encourage them and make them understand it's a really long-term process, you'll find it uh, certainly in about 10 or 12 weeks, you start getting really good results. And then beyond three months, you get excellent results if they stick to some sort of program. And I think in most cases I've seen where I've got young athletes, we we tend to really well keep them pretty well pain-free by following this approach. So uh, I think it's really important to emphasise this, and it's, it's a great consensus statement for the listeners to have a look at because it's free online. Does it vary differently uh, for the patella tendonitis? So is it a very similar approach otherwise? Yeah, ten, tendon... There are some principles of the same, certainly I think hip control, but tendon, then you're going into a whole new area. The issue of tendon is tendon is a continuously evolving tissue structure. It's continuously catabolizing and, and then anabolizing, growing. And what we want is to keep that in a nice state of balance. When catabolism uh, overtakes the buildup of the tendon, then we've got a problem. And that seems to occur in times of overload. And the athlete we're talking about is the jumping athlete and the patella tendon, where that tissue can be overloaded. And if you look at what happens pathologically with that tissue, there seems to be three very rough stages. The first stage is where the tendon is a reactive tendon, where it's swollen, angry, highly painful, highly fluctuating pain scores. As the tendon continues to be put under load and continues to catabolize, you then get into the stage where the t- tissue tends to be a little bit irregular and a little bit wavy. And then in the more advanced stages, you see those advanced tendons with big, what are classified as tears in them, mucousy degenerative tissue. They tend to be less reactive in terms of pain, but they're very much harder to rehabilitate because they're obviously the quality of the tissue is not so good. And that the approach to take with those tendons is to load them in the appropriate way. The mistake a lot of people make is they rest these tendons for long periods of time. Now, rest sometimes does alleviate pain, but as soon as you go them back to load, then you tend to get more dramatic pain. And these tendons like to be stimulated, and if they're mechanic, they've got mechanical receptors in them. If you stimulate them in the right way, then you can get change in the tendon. And that really is a quite a controversial area. The old Alpherson program you may be familiar with, with the Achilles, was just a pure eccentric program. We've also used concentric 
heavy loaded concentric seems to help tendons. And then, of course, as I talked about, the isometrics, and that tends to be an area that uh, we're spending more and more time in. But again, very controversial. Personally, I tend to use isometrics early, a combination of isometric concentric as they become more comfortable, and then a combination of all three isoconcentric, eccentric in the later phases of rehab. But I think the most important thing to understand with tendons is you must load them up in a comfortable manner, and that's the most important thing. One of the exercises I see a lot of people coming along with and they seem to be causing issues are lunges and squats, squatting exercises. Are they, uh, is that a loading that's a good exercise to do or a bad one? Well, this is what you've asked is, raises a really, really good point, Gavin. I think that, to me, the most provocative load you can put through a tendon is an eccentric load. So in a patella tendon, that's exactly what a lunge and a squat is. Now, I think if you, in some athletes, if you can bear the pain and push through eccentric long enough, that would eventually help the tendon repair itself. But what you're pointing out is exactly what I see in my practice. People who've been given eccentric exercises and they're incredibly painful because they're extracting that tendon with the most load you can put through it in an eccentric fashion and they tend to present with a lot of pain and then lose total faith in exercise. They tend to lose total faith in their therapist because they've been given this program and it hurts. And they're the ones that are really, really reluctant to get moving. You know, they've got that real pain sensitization because the tendon's been too overloaded, in my opinion. So I tend to start those patients on something they feel comfortable with, something that's not going to de-stress the the subconscious brain and really threaten your whole system by putting massive load and make causing pain. Just something nice and easy they can achieve, a nice, easy isometric, a nice, say, in a patella tendon, a nice, easy isometric hold against the belt, a nice, easy leg extension just against gravity where they don't fully lock out. Start them with something confident that they can be confident in, that they can perform, that doesn't give them pain. And then later on in the uh, the rehab, then you can do some more fancy things. And as I often say to people, look, that exercise you've been given is a great exercise, but perhaps not for right now with what you're feeling and where you're at. Well, look, that, I think that covers most of uh, those three topics we wanted, wanted to talk about, and you've done it in a really brilliant way. Thanks again, Mark, for coming along, Aussie Med Ed. Pleasure, Gav. I think it's a great initiative by you, and uh, I reckon it's going to be something that's going to be really help medical students, doctors out there to sort of hear some of these topics being discussed in a really thorough and interesting way. Thanks, mate. Excellent. Thanks very much, Mark. Mark Tazana. Thank you. The information provided to you today is designed to complement the information provided to you in your local region and should supplement your readings and teachings in that area. Please don't take it as the only way of treating this condition or assessing a condition, but really as one of various ways of assessing these conditions. Please be also be aware that the information provided today is really just general medical advice and isn't designed to actually be a source of medical information regarding your particular condition. Remember to consult your specialist or medical practitioner if you have concerns about a condition raised in this podcast. Well, thanks once again for listening to our podcast, Aussie Med Ed or the Australian Medical Education Podcast. We really enjoy hosting this podcast. I hope you find it useful to hear a pragmatic approach to everyday conditions. If you have any questions or information you want to ask about us, 
or you'd like to put a suggestion for a topic, please don't hesitate to email us at gavin at med-ed.com.au. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed listening to it and we look forward to hosting it next fortnight when we introduce a new topic. Thank you.